Well, if you have a Bible, take it and turn it to that text in Luke that was just read. I'll be looking at today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, then let me um, invite you to go pick one up on the round tables in the back. Uh, it's okay. You can feel free to get up right now and, and go grab it. Um, they're yours. Take, read. They're free. If you are new to Christianity, new to the Bible, uh, you don't know where uh, Luke is, that's okay. We all start somewhere. And there's a table of contents in the front of your Bibles that will show you uh, where this passage is. Well, we have been in a series on the Lord's Supper, uh, looking at it, and we have this week and one more week on that series, and we've looked at various aspects of it. Uh, and today, we're going to look at the aspect that may be most familiar to us, uh, maybe most familiar, but not fully familiar, maybe too familiar, we'll see. And that is uh, how this supper is about a, a memorial, a remembrance. Well, let me, um, let me pray for us. God, as we turn now to look at your word and to hear you speak through it, we ask that you would do just that. That you would present to us words of truth and life and that the truth might set us free. That we might be free indeed. That the life would be imparted to our hearts. That we might have joy to the full. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're following the news, but earlier this month, the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, they canonized Mother Teresa. Uh, Mother Teresa uh, is now Saint Teresa, Saint Mother Teresa. I don't know what they will call her. Uh, and it's been somewhat of a, people are talking about it. And one of the reasons that people are talking about it is because um, there was a, a book of letters that came out about 10 years ago, 10 years after Mother Teresa passed away. And they kind of shocked the world. They shocked the world because in those letters, private letters, we found that for over 50 years, Mother Teresa actually had a profound and private struggle. That struggle was that she doubted the love of God and the presence of God in her life. See, when she went to Calcutta, she went with a vibrant relationship with Jesus, wanting to serve him and love him like no one else ever had. And it wasn't too long after she had been there that she felt the absence of Jesus, an absence that she felt throughout the rest of her life. They've been talking about canonizing her um, since the 60s, really. And in one of those letters, she reveals that she says, if I am made a saint, I will be the only saint who dwells in darkness. One time she wrote to a spiritual mentor of hers, Jesus has a very special love for you, speaking of her mentor, but as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, I listen and I do not hear. Now that's something. Here's this woman that in the outward appearances looks like uh, she has a vibrant relationship with God, that she is faithful and yet... She has this profound struggle. 
You know, doubt is a common experience for many Christians. It's a common experience for the followers of God. And we don't just have to look to Mother Teresa to see that. We actually see that throughout the Bible. Think about Abraham, who though he is called the man of faith, and yes, he had great faith, he also had great doubt. He wrestled, God, are you with me? Are you for me? And that kind of doubt led him away from the land and seeking, seeking a, a shelter in Egypt. It led him to give away his wife. Abraham was a man of profound doubt. Not just Abraham. Think about the apostle Peter. Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus looks at him. And it pierced him. And we read that after that, Peter went fishing. You know, when it says Peter went fishing, it doesn't mean that Peter wanted some alone time, that he needed to process what had happened. No, when Peter went fishing, you have to understand that fishing is, was Peter's occupation before he started following Jesus. He was going back. He was done. He was saying, how could the Lord love me after what I have done to him? How could the Lord accept me after I have rejected him? And, and can I even say that I love him? And it's not just the Apostle Peter either. Because we see in this text that when Jesus tells his disciples, he tells them he knows something about them. He knows that one of them will betray him. Verses 21 and 22, he tells them, I know that one of you will betray me. And look at how they respond, verse 23. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now that seems like they are just pointing the blame. But more is going on here than that. Because Mark, he gives us a different insight. Mark says that they each went around the table and began to be sorrowful and, quote, say to one another, and say to him one after another, is it I? Am I the one who is going to betray you? Do you hear the insecurity? Do you hear the doubt? I wonder if you can relate. I'm sure in a room like this, many can relate. What do we do with our doubts? God, are you with me? God, are you for me? God, do you love me? God, do you still accept me after what I have done again and again and again? What does Jesus do with our doubts? What Jesus does with our doubts is he invites us to a meal. That's what he does in this text. You know, meals, they have an uncanny ability to solidify and cement and confirm a relationship. Embrace and exclusion, they are seen over meals. I mean, think about it. Go back in your mind's eye back to your middle school lunchroom. Uh, where you were able to sit and who you sat with, it was a statement about where you were accepted. Who accepted you? To be invited to the table was to be invited in. It was to be accepted. It was to be loved. And the opposite was true as well. And the same was true in Jesus' day. When he invites people to a meal, he is 
inviting them into a place of love and a place of acceptance. See, this meal, it confirms God's love for us. And to understand how it does that, you need to understand three things about this meal or three uh, aspects of it. First, you need to understand that the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. Look in verse 20. Jesus is sitting there and he takes the cup and he says, This cup is poured out for this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now the words seem very small, but they actually have a depth of meaning within them because they allude to two places in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. Two places that would have been readily uh, at hand to the disciples. The first place is in Exodus, is in, in uh, the book of Exodus, when God makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Uh, for those of you who have forgotten or don't remember, let me remind you what happens. Uh, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, they have been uh, slaves in Egypt for 400 years. For 400 years, they have been oppressed. And at the end of that time, they are severely oppressed, so much so that they cry out to God in their anguish. And he hears them. He hears them, and he rescues them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the Bible says. He takes them and he leads them through the Red Sea and he leads them through the wilderness and he brings them to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and there God makes a covenant with them. Now, because we are 21st century Americans and not ancient Israelites, we don't use the word covenant very much and it's kind of unfamiliar to us. But what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a relationship that is built on or founded on promises. It's a formal relationship that is founded on promises, kind of like a marriage. A marriage is a covenant. And, and God, he makes a covenant with Israel. He makes promises to them, promises to be their God, to be present with them, to provide for them. And Israel, for their part, they made promises to God. You see, God gives them a law. And that law is a way that God was saying, this is how I need to be loved. This is how I want you to love me. Any of us who have been married have had that experience, right? Oh, that's how you need to be loved. That's how you want to be loved. Well, God gives the law, and Israel responds, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's a covenant. And then they, they ratify that covenant. They, they, uh, they have a ceremony kind of like we have ceremonies to ratify a marriage covenant. And in that ceremony, they did some strange things. First, they, they, they performed some sacrifices in Exodus 24. There are whole burnt offerings that are offered. There are fellowship offerings that are offered. And then Moses, their leader, he takes the blood from those sacrifices, and part of the blood he pours out on the altar. And the other part, I mean, couldn't you just imagine being there? Wouldn't you want to be there at that time? And then he pours the blood on the altar, and then the next thing he does is he takes the blood. You really want to be there, right? What if we did this this morning? He takes the blood, and he sprays it on the people. Still want to be there? He was ratifying the covenant. And then he said these words, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Behold, the blood of the covenant. Blood poured out, blood sprinkled on the people. Whole burnt offerings for sin, cleansing. Fellowship offerings for peace and communion. Well, the ceremony wasn't over. 
they did something else to cap it all off. Do you know what they did? Any ideas? Any guesses? What do we do to cap off a ceremony? They ate a meal. They went up, the Bible says, to the Mount of Sinai, and they sat down and they ate, and they, quote, beheld their God. Well, here we have another meal, another mention of blood poured out, another covenant. But this covenant is a different covenant. It's not the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. Jesus says it is a new covenant. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And these words, they allude to another place in the scriptures. They allude to a promise that's made in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, God records, or Jeremiah records a promise that God made to his people he says this in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. See, Israel, they had good intentions. They had the best intentions. All the Lord says we will do, but they had bad follow through. Over and over and over and over again, they failed to keep their end of the deal. They were faithless to their husband, Yahweh. They abandoned their spouse. And so, God, he says, I'm going to make another covenant. It's not going to be, verse 32, like the original covenant. Well, how is it going to be different? Well, this is how. This is going to be an unbreakable covenant. The text goes on, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, this is an unbreakable covenant. An unbreakable covenant because what God will do is he will put the law in the hearts of the people. That is, that he will change their disposition so that they actually look differently towards God. They will want to respond to God. They will have a newfound ability to respond to God. It's an unbreakable covenant because of it. It's also an unbreakable covenant because God will ground this covenant in a definitive act of forgiveness. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, this covenant will be unbreakable. Uh, that God, he himself is promising, not only that he will be our God, but, but God, God himself promises that we will be his people. It's God's promise. Not ours to him, his to ours. It's his to us. And it's grounded, all grounded, a definitive act of sacrifice. What is that act of sacrifice? Well, look at verse 20 again. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is the blood of Jesus poured out for sinners. I had a friend I was talking to, and he got a job at AutoZone in Memphis, and he was hired for this job, and he realized shortly after that he basically got hired above his pay grade. 
He was way out of his depth, and he didn't understand it. So he was showing up extra early to work every morning. He was staying late every night, and he figured, like, I don't know how to do this job, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do this job. And so every day he, he, ro- he drove into work with this anxiety. When are they going to find out that I'm a fraud? Or when am I going to blow up? Uh, uh, when am I going to, you know, mess up so bad that they fire me? He was just waiting. When is this going to happen? You know, I think a lot of us feel like that in our relationship with God. When am I going to blow it so bad that he's going to stop loving me, stop accepting me, stop forgiving me? Is it the next time or was it the last time? The last time I did that thing over and over and over and over again. And we have this anxiety. Does God love me? Is he for me? Will the relationship break up? Will there be a breakup? There was a hymn writer, his name is William Cooper. We spell it Cowper, the Brits say Cooper. He was British. People don't know him very well, but they know his best friend, John Newton, Amazing Grace. If you've heard of, of a hymn from William Cooper, it's the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. William Cooper, he understood the gospel. But the slightly less known hymn that really characterizes his life is the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, because his life was pretty mysterious. He lost two siblings before the age of six, and at the age of six, he lost his mother. His father, at that point, sent him off to boarding school, so he was effectively orphaned at that time. There at boarding school for two years, he was abused every day by a 15-year-old boy. He struggled with depression, anxiety. He met a girl. They had a relationship for seven years. They were engaged, but the father broke off the engagement. And from that point, he went into a deep depression. Suicidal suicidal attempts marked his life, his entire life. In fact, at the very end of his life, the last thing that he ever wrote, the last poem was called Cast Away because he felt that he was cast away by God. How can God love me? Is God for me? He is absent. Cooper's life was a life that was marked by doubt. In fact, one time he had this horrible dream of God appearing to him and saying, you are lost, it's over for you. Elizabeth Barrett Browning is a poet, and she was very fascinated by William Cooper's life. And she wrote a poem. It's called On Cooper's Grave. And in that poem, she has this verse. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, this universe has shaken. It went up single, echoless, amidst his lost creation. It went up from the holy's lips, that of the lost creation, no son should ever have to use those words of desolation. 
Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that William Cooper would never be forsaken by God. You see, this covenant is an unbreakable covenant. And it didn't matter what William Cooper felt like. It was true that God had promised to be his God. And William Cooper, God had promised that he would be his son. In life and in death. And this meal, it ratifies that. It seals that. It confirms that promise. Because it is all based on a definitive sacrifice. The final sacrifice that ends all sacrifices, the sacrifice of Jesus. Which brings us to the second thing about this meal, and that is this, that the Lord's Supper, it is a, not only a covenant meal, it is a sacrificial meal. It's important to understand the context in which Jesus is speaking these words. Verse 15 tells us that he is laying down, reclining at table, and they are having Passover. Now, what is Passover? Passover was a Jewish uh, feast in which they celebrated this great event in their history where God delivered them from Egypt. We talked about it earlier. And God, when he delivered them from Egypt, he gave them very specific instructions. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb. We read this earlier. And and that lamb is going to be 14 days old. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to kill that lamb. And the blood from that lamb, you're going to take it and you're going to paint it over your doorpost. And then you're going to go inside and you're going to get ready to travel. You're going to have your your sandals shod and and your belt tight. And then there, around the table, you were going to eat a lamb. Now, it's very mysterious, and I can't get into all the details. If you want to know more, I have a sermon called Keep the Feast that I preached November of 2003. You can hear more about it there, and I'll explain why this makes sense. But the thing that I want to focus on this morning is simply this, that... The only way an Israelite was saved that night, the only way that they would be rescued, the only way anyone in Egypt was to be rescued is if they had a blood on their doorpost and a lamb on their table. You see, the sacrifice of the lamb, that is what freed them. God used that sacrifice to redeem them, to release them from slavery. Here Jesus is. He is eating with his disciples. But there's something that is conspicuously absent. Did you notice? The text never mentions a lamb. Instead, what we find is Jesus picking up bread But instead of saying what everyone expected him to say, instead of saying, this bread is the bread of our affliction, he says, this is my body given for you, verse 19. And then he takes a cup, and instead of saying, this this is the blood on the doorpost, he says, verse 20, this cup is poured out for you, or this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What was Jesus saying? He was saying as clearly as he could, I am the lamb. I am the sacrifice. I am the one who takes away the sin of the world. I am the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Hark the voice of love and mercy sounds aloud from Calvary. 
See, it rents the rocks asunder, shakes the earth and veils the sky. It is finished. It is finished. Hear the dying Savior cry. This sacrifice is a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I am the lamb, he is saying. And the only way, the only way that you can be redeemed, the only way that you can have God pass over you in judgment, as if you have me for your sacrifice. As if my blood covers your life. As if my body and blood are on your table. But, but, but it's a good question. Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. But why didn't he just say, this is my body, this is my blood, look at it? Why does he say, eat it? Take and eat. Because... The Lord's Supper, while it's not a sacrifice, it is a sacrificial meal. And you see, in the Old Testament, sacrificial meals like Passover, uh, what they implied was when a sacrifice was put on the table like a lamb and the worshiper sat down to eat it, what it communicated to the worshiper was that they had an interest in that sacrifice, that that, that sacrifice was for them. To have the lamb in your belly was to have the lamb's blood cover your life. In other words, it communicated to them in ways that words couldn't, that the lamb was for them. She, to eat the sacrifice, confirmed an interest in that sacrifice. And in the same way, just as those who ate the lamb at Passover were assured of God's redemption, so we, when we come and we eat bread and we drink wine, we are assured of God's redemption for us. See, the, the, the bread and the wine, they speak volumes. My favorite band of all time is that great 90s band who has not gotten enough press, and that is the band Extreme. Know Extreme? Many of you don't know Extreme, but you might know their most beautiful song, More Than Words. More Than Words? More Than Words? how easy it would be to show you how I feel. More than words is all I have to do to make it real. Now that I've tried to talk to you and make you understand, all you have to do is close your eyes and just reach out your hand. I mean, this is, this is, this is moving stuff. I'm kidding, people. I'm kidding. I don't like extreme. <laughs> Except for when they start speaking in tongues. La-di-da, da-di-dee, da-di-da, la-di-da. More than words. That's my favorite part of the song. It's a cheesy song. It's a goofy song. But it does get at something, doesn't it? That as humans, we need more than words. That we need more than words to communicate to us. In 2013, there was a Psychology Today article. And it actually confirmed uh, the importance of human touch. It said that human touch is actually, it was reporting on studies, human touch is actually essential to healthy brain development in children, as well as a coherent sense of self. I mean, we need touch. If you just tell a child that you love the child, but you never hug the child or kiss the child as it grows up, that child is going to be seriously emotionally messed up. It's not enough to just tell it with words that you love it. You have to actually hug it and kiss it. We need, we need more than words. Uh, Walter uh, Vongren Jr. is a writer, 
uh, he was also used to be a preacher. And he tells the story about um, he and his wife's relationship. They had been married for some time, and one night, all of a sudden, his wife left the bedroom. He went and found her out, and she was crying on the couch, and she wouldn't talk. He said, my wife always slept, but she did not sleep that night. Afterwards, uh, he didn't understand what was wrong. She wouldn't say anything to them, and they spent almost a month in silence. During that time, he continued to try to do affectionate things for her, but nothing would work. One day, bad day, in the middle of a sermon, he decided, oh, I'll make it up to her this way, and he, he grabbed a rose as an illustration in the middle of the sermon, and he went down and he handed it to her, uh, to his wife. And she just sat there tight-lipped, and she fought back the tears, angry at what he had done. Well, one night, one night after she said, I've, I've had enough, and she left, she came back, and he had canceled the plans that evening, and she just, well, the silence broke, and the floodgate came out. And she said, I hate you. I don't love you. And then she proceeded to explain why. And he said, everything she said was true. See, I was a good pastor, but I neglected my wife. And while I was caring in the church, I was not caring at home. I was short with my kids. I was not emotionally involved with my wife. And it had broken her spirit completely. And she was right. And at that point, I realized that I would not experience love. And it was my fault. And I resigned myself to that. He said, we couldn't think about divorce because of our background. But I knew that our existence from that point forward would be one of strangers living in a house together. Well, one Sunday evening, not too long after that, she comes into his office. And she puts his hand, uh, she puts her hand on his shoulder. And she didn't look angry and she didn't look tight-lipped. And she says, Wally, will you hug me? And he says, well, I hug you. Will you let me hug you? And he jumped up and he hugged her and he said, I've experienced hugs before, but that hug, it was salvation. You know, we need more than words. We need hugs and kisses. We need embrace. And God knows that. He knows that because he created us as creatures. He knows that we are flesh. He knows how he made us. And so he communicates to us, not just by telling us that he loves us through his word, but through hugs and kisses. That's what the sacraments are. That's why he says, take and eat. These are physical ways in which God communicates to us his hug and his kiss in which he says, I want to hug you because I want you to know I love you. And I want to confirm that to you here and now. Do you doubt God's love for you?
do you struggle to think God couldn't love you? Then this table is for you. Come to this table. Taste and see that the Lord is good and he is good to you and he is for you. He invites you here to eat his body and to drink his blood and to know that as real as the bread is on your mouth, so real is his love for you. That so real as the wine is on your tongue, so real is his smile towards you, his child. So real as that is, so real has he washed all way all of your sin. This table is a covenant meal. This table is the sacrificial meal, but finally, this table, the Lord's Supper, is a memorial meal. The words that are most common to us, probably, if we know anything about this table, is that Jesus commands in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. I had uh, in the communion table, the church that I grew up with, uh, those words were etched into the front of it. Do this in remembrance of me. And if we know anything about this table, we know that it's to be done in remembrance of, of Jesus. But and most of the time, I think what we think about that, what that means is that we're to call to memory, to recall what he has done for, for us. But it's interesting that the, the operative phrase here is not remember this or recall this, but do this. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, what does it mean to do this in remembrance of me? You know, it's not just individuals who remember things. Communities remember things too. Uh, the Brits, they remember when they stopped Guy Fox and his plot from blowing up Parliament. And we, we remember uh, the Declaration of Independence every 4th of July. And we remember when pilgrims and Native Americans had a uh, fall festival together. And how do we remember those things? Well, we remember them by reenacting them. We remember them through fireworks. It's a reenactment of the war. And we remember them through fat bellies. It's a reenactment of Thanksgiving, maybe. And football, because they played that then as well. <laughs> but to remember something corporately is to actually reenact it. And Israel, they remembered things as well. The Passover was the greatest remembrance that they had. We read it in Exodus 12, verse 14. This day shall be a memorial to you or remembrance to you. It's the same word. And so what does it mean to remember? Well, to remember something is, is not to simply recall it to mind, but to actually reenact it. But, but for Jews, it meant something more than that. For a Jew, it meant to identify with it. See, the instructions that God gives his people in the Exodus, he tells them that, that when their child asks, you know, why do we keep this meal, that they're supposed to say in Exodus 12, verse 8, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. But you know, that wasn't a command that was just given to the generation who came out of Egypt. That was a command that every generation was supposed to say. Generations way after people had died from coming out of the Exodus, they were supposed to say, this is what the Lord did for me when he brought me out of Egypt. And they actually say it to this day if you were to go to a Passover Seder. This is what the Lord did for me. In other words, it's not a simply 
simply a historical reconstructing, but a way of making the past event present. The rabbis, they said, in every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth out of Egypt. The Passover was what we might call a self-involving ritual. To remember doesn't simply mean to recall. No, it means to identify with the rescue. I need that, and God brought me out. So what does that have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, this, I would suggest to you, is a memorial, a remembrance. It is a self-involving ritual. Let me ask you a question. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. I lived in Salzburg, and I used to take the train up to Munich, and there in the old museum there, they had the Rembrandt room. I love Rembrandt. One of the paintings of of Rembrandt is the the lifting of the cross. And uh, and in that painting, it's... there are these soldiers, and they are lifting up the cross. And uh, in a Rembrandt, he always used to do self-portraits. And you always knew who Rembrandt was because he always had a green painter's cap on. And there, one of those soldiers, he's dressed very curiously. He has on a green painter's cap, lifting up the cross. It was Rembrandt's great theological statement. I did it. It was me. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Everything that I have ever done, every bad thought, every misdeed, every time I've ever lied, every time I've ever been absent emotionally from my family, every time I have abused someone for uh, who they are to get my own way and to get ahead, every time I've done that, all of those, every act of pride, of looking down and sneering on someone else. Every time I have done that, every act of people-pleasing, it was there, drenched. Jesus was drenched in my sin. And if you believe in him, he was drenched in yours as well. You see, this is a self-involving ritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. But it's more... Than that, there's something else that we need to understand about a memorial. You, you see, the first memorial in Scripture is the first thing that's called a remembrance or a memorial is the rainbow, that God's covenant sign with Abraham. And God tells us what that sign is all or not with Abraham, with Noah. God tells us what that covenant sign. Yes, I need to go back to seminary. God tells us what that covenant sign is all about. It says. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it, God says, to remember the everlasting covenant. So the rainbow, who's it for? Is it for us? Is it for Noah? When the bow is in the cloud, I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant. Hmm. And, and you know, Passover, it's called a memorial. We read that earlier. And and there's a memorial, there's a sign. It says that that I'm going to put the the blood on the doorpost and it will be a sign for you. It will be a sign for you. But, But then what happens, he says that when God draws near and I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over. So who's the sign for? When I see. Is it for 
for the Israelites? Or is it for God? You see, memorials in the Bible, they are not primarily designed to remind people of God's works, but to remind God of his words. And the Lord's Supper, it is a memorial. It's a memorial where we take bread and we take wine and we take these signs and we ingest them into ourselves. And when we have this memorial, God looks and he sees and he remembers the work of his son. And he remembers his promise. I will forgive all their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There was a, one of the Nazis, uh, the genius behind all their technological innovation was a guy named Albert Speer. And he was the only one of the 24 Nazis in the high ranks that were tried that actually confessed his guilt. After 20 years in prison... He said this, I have served 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man because he was released at that point, but my conscience has been, uh, and I could say that I'm a free man, that my conscience has been cleared by serving this whole time as punishment. He said this, but I can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of the guilt. An interviewer turned that on to me and said, well, do you think you'll ever get rid of the guilt? And he said, no, I don't think so. I don't think it's possible. You know, there are sins that I have done. There are sins that many of, of you have done, and we can't get them out of our heads. It's like we can't be free from the guilt. We can't forget them. But here's what I want you to know. The sins that you can't forget, God can't remember. Because he remembers the work of his son. And based on that, he says, I will forgive all their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So when we come to this table, when we reenact this meal, we remember that God remembers. God remembers his son and he accepts us because of it. Amen.